Good morning, church. These are those kind of circumstances you don't look forward to in the sense that someone else should be in this place. But I thank God for the opportunity to bring his word to us all this morning as it's ministered to me this, this week and as I've thought much about it over the last couple of days since Pastor Paul asked me to, to fill in for him. This truly is a, an exciting time, and it's interesting. Sometimes people hear that nobody wants to hear about Christmas in the secular world. But I, I, I really think it's interesting from time to time that when you say Merry Christmas to people, you can kind of gauge where they're at. And I had a woman in front of me yesterday in a store who had a pile, and I had three things, you know, and she had a pile of stuff. And uh, she turned around, she looked at me, and she said, why don't you go in front of me? I said, really? And she said, yeah. I said, Merry Christmas. Oh, you, you said Merry Christmas. People still say Merry Christmas. And so we had this really cute little exchange there. I kind of went over the outline of my message with her, and we're praising Jesus and everything like that. And the cashier and the, and the bagger were like looking at us like, this, does this guy and this woman know each other? So, yeah, the, the spirit of Christmas is real. Let me pray first. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to come here this morning to recognize the importance of why we're here, and what it, is, uh, what it is that we are about considering the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord God, as we, as we have prayed already for Pastor Paul and Karen and, and the family there, we continue to, to remember others as well at this particular time of the year, or shut in, or not able to experience family. God, somehow in some way through this message, may your word go forth as an encouragement, a reminder to edify and strengthen us. And so, Lord, uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to thee, O God, my strength, my rock, and my redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. Some time ago, the Chicago Tribune wrote an article, reported basically on a bus driver who, in finishing Route Number 21 in the Detroit metro area, did not show up at the terminal. He apparently was supposed to be there at 7.20. And so they started calling around, and they started to wonder if the bus had broken down. And as the time was going forward and hours were starting to pass by, his wife even called the bus terminal and said, where's, where's my husband? And said, we don't know. We don't know. So they put out an APB, and six hours later, on a rural road in northern Michigan, not far from the Mackinac Bridge, they found this bus driver weaving all over the place. The police were able to pull him over. And they asked him, they said, do you have any idea where you're at and what you're doing? And he just simply said, no, I don't even know how I got here. Well, that being said, they found out that he was on medications. And his wife said that sometimes he got disoriented, maybe because he wanted to get a little better quicker. He took a little bit more. You know, that doesn't always work, right? And, and nevertheless, though, he was terribly disoriented. And he was off of what was a familiar path. Now, although it may seem unfair to criticize the waywardness of a medicated man, the point is when a powerful influence takes control of us, we can and may very well wind up in places or thinking in different ways we never could imagine. And in this, my concern is rooted that there are a number of so-called Christians who dismiss the incarnation is not that important or logical. These are those who believe they are headed in the direction of a good moral and even spiritual life, but have become over-medicated 
by false teachings. And I'll just give you an example. I just picked this up off the internet. I mean, everything's on the internet, right? I'm not going to tell you where it's at because I want to promote this folly. There's this guy recently posted and said this in quote, the best reason not to affirm the Trinity or the incarnation is that one does not need it to make sense of the New Testament, unquote. And in the reading of what he had written, he had all this fancy understanding of Greek language and theology and history and all this kind of stuff. Perfect kind of place I like to go to see what people are saying. But this guy was just whacked. I mean, really, it was just he was so out of touch. And so allow me to show otherwise. Our text is about the importance of the incarnation. And so we go to Galatians this morning. We go to Galatians. And hopefully we're, we're going to be able to see some things here that are important with respect to the very important fact that biblical Christianity has always upheld that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are one. And that Jesus, same yesterday, today, and forever, is the timeless, eternal Lord God and creator and sustainer of the universe. The Christian gospel unfolds first and foremost with the great doctrine of the incarnation. The coming of Jesus Christ, who is the timeless Lord of all, came to tabernacle in a specific time in human history. Tabernacle meaning to tend in, to, to be a part of the world. The first coming of Jesus is related to the fulfillment of the law, the guardian that was tasked to reveal God's righteous demands and the essential purpose of the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. John the Baptist's very first declaration was, Behold, the Lamb of God, which comes to take away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who was before, preferred before me, for he was before me. Which is to say that Christ is eternally timeless and was before he came to this world. In our text, the Apostle Paul hoped to enlighten the confused, bewitched, and foolish Galatians who had questioned the merit of Christ's work and the justification by faith as explained through the testimony of Abraham, which Paul had developed earlier in the third chapter. So what we need to do here is just take a look here, a little bit of a pretext before we get into the actual text, to just show you here that in, in verses 26 to 29 in chapter 3, Paul labored to restate the glorious transforming power and promises of the gospel. It's kind of like when a teacher emphasizes through review, now you really need to get this. And if you don't get it, you're not going to pass the test. You just really need to know this. And so what Paul does here is in verses 26 through 29, I'm just going to say a couple things about each verse, and you can follow along here as, as we read it. But it's important that in verse 26, he emphasizes the fact that we, by faith, are all sons. In verse 27, for as many are as baptized in Christ have put on Christ. In verse 28, there is no difference by way of ethnicity, social standing, or gender. All are one in Christ. And in verse 29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, that is, one of the family of the faithful. And by virtue of being family, 
You are heirs. This is so important. This is so important to embrace. So perhaps after Paul wrote these things, maybe even after feeling a little exasperated, trying to make the obvious more clear, he then makes an interesting appeal. He's basically saying with verse one, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. It's like he's saying, listen, Galatians, there's a parallel between the child and the slave as relating to you being heirs. So if I may, one very interesting point as to why Paul does this parallel and comments about the in the fullness of time that we're going to look at in verse 4 is to reference the subject of an heir as to familiar to the cultural realities that a child had to wait in due time or wait until the father's appointed time for their inheritance. And therefore, while in the waiting, they were really no different than a slave. And in some very similar way, we are all waiting. So therefore, if we look at the big idea here this morning, if we look at the big idea, we see our faith and comfort in God through Jesus Christ are found in knowing the wisdom of his divine timing while providing hope for his people in a world seeming to be spinning out of control. And isn't that true? I mean... How many times have you heard people say, where's God in all this? When's God going to do something about it? What's wrong with the world? Well, we know what's wrong with the world. We know it's a fallen world in need of redemption. And so we have this wonderful time in the year, which we are all called to recognize that there is going to be a great day of reckoning. And it has been already prepared and provided for our, our witness to a world that's fallen and spinning out of control. And it was interesting, even at the time when Christ came, it wasn't much different. I mean, we're, we're in a fallen world. And so historically speaking, it's always been out of control when men take control. It's, it's, this is nothing new under the sun. But it's also important for us to just take note here in the scriptures here in their first point. The fullness of time in transition, verses 1 through 3, which basically is about the past up to the time in which we would see how this works. So look, let's look at the verses here, verses 1 through 3. I mean there, the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. How many times have you heard this? We got all the riches in Christ already, Right? But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, in having been a teacher, I know two things. I know the need for education and I know the difficulty of educating. These are givens. Many Times essential information is made as clear and as relevant as possible by a teacher, and kids and adults don't get it. The need for teaching is because there is a, a tendency in our fallen nature, a natural ignorance or sometimes an indifference to learn. And, and the Jews recognized this. 
The Jews were given the law. They were given ways in which they could communicate God's will and truth. The Jews recognized this, and they were very systematic in making known the revelation of God to his people. They have the Talmud. They always refer to the Torah, the Mishrat, and all these different kinds of educational mechanisms to prepare a young man or a young girl for their bar mitzvah or bar mitzvah. And this was an important stage in the Jewish culture. The teachings were necessary and were viewed as spiritual as well as cultural because we need to consider what this whole concept that Paul is trying to talk about here or is talking about concerning guardians and managers. He uses two very interesting words here. The guardians are trusted tutors and the managers are basically the house CPA, the economic advisor for the household. In fact, the word we get economics from comes from the word used there in this this text. So it's it's a very interesting application where Paul is making it clear that, look, in, in the whole process of growing up to become a responsible individual, people took great pains to educate their people, their children, with trusted teachers and manage the household of that child in such a way that they would learn accountability. Other cultures, the Greeks and the Romans, had similar what we call rites of passage as well. But it's all considered to be done until the date set by the father. Very important thing. So that's, that's basically the need for teaching. The need for teaching. And then there's the difficulty of teaching. The difficulty of teaching comes with the natural rebellion and even arrogance about learning. I mean, uh, as a teacher, I've run into a fair number of students who already thought they knew more than I did about any given subject. And, and if it wasn't about the given subject, there was something about what they wanted to let me know that they knew that I didn't know to make me feel like I didn't know anything. And a lot of times I could quickly uh, affirm that by saying, yeah, you're right. I am dumb when it comes to math. Ask my wife. You know, or, or something, you know, I'll get grammatically wrong if I say something. But the, the fact of the matter is, is this is just why teaching is difficult sometimes, because the Jews experienced this and added much to the discipline of learning, almost as such as that we believe the rigors of education are important. Sometimes they strengthen people, yay, and sometimes they embitter persons, boo. You know, it's just like, I don't want any more of this. It just goes for us today in school or in church or anywhere anywhere, where people might say something like, why do we have to keep learning this? This is boring. Or I already know this. Or this is hard. So the, the emphasis here is, is that Paul said, look, you, you Galatians are, are much like everybody else. You've been taught carefully. You've been taught in righteousness, you've been taught in theology, you've been taught in a way in which who Christ is would be made clear. And then he he basically makes this even more so because he says here, in the same way also, verse 3, when we were children, we were enslaved to elementary principles of the world. There's a bondage factor. There is not only a time of teaching, but there is a time of bondage. And as much as I can say I know what it's like to be as a teacher it's not hard for me to say and shouldn't be hard for you to say either that we have quite a bit of experience being sinners and we know what bondage is. We know what some kind of bondage is and consider that in the same way, these children in this imagery here were enslaved to something. 
And Paul says they were enslaved to elementary principles of the world. Now, Pastor Paul just talked a little bit about some of the false philosophies and false teachings and so forth. And, and with the elementary principles of the world, we have these philosophical fences that are put up, worldviews, so to speak, theological boundaries, whatever you call it, that shape mindsets and develop outlook. And so our culture is very powerfully impressing upon us a mindset to dismiss things that seem miraculous or unbelievable, like the gospel, like the incarnation. So much so that there are Christians, like the guy I quoted, so-called Christians, who have now manufactured in their own minds arguments to dismiss the inevitably important doctrine of the incarnation. So we know that it's crept into the church. We know the powers and influences of worldly philosophies. I need not cite stats about the effects of minds young and old that are being saturated by worldly influences. And these elementary principles of the world are like elementary principles of the self as well as the self has evolved. You don't just so much need the world's influence by nature, our selfishness, our innate ability to dismiss all other reasonable foundations is birthed in our own imagination and developed in our own working outs through selfish mindsets, demands, and entitlements. These are things of the world. And the Galatians are, are being reminded, okay, you, you've gone through all this. You know this. This is how it is. Therefore, the second point here, it is important to see that back then and now and forevermore, God's understanding of our crisis, a hopelessly out of control, godless society, needs a savior. So secondly, the fullness of time and redemption is being discussed here in verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, the timeliness of the timeless Christ coming implies that he came from somewhere. And where did he come from? Well, he came from God. He, came, he is God. Christ's coming is God's coming into the world. This is what's hard for some people to wrap their mind in and understand that he is God, that Jesus is God. And it's so important to understand that. And historically in the confessionals and the faith creeds, there was always this emphasis about how important it is to believe that Jesus Christ is God. That God was before time is a given. So if that's the case, then Christ was before time as a given. In Christ, our timeless God, the Father, entered humanity by way of the Holy Spirit's work in the incarnation. We sang about this. Born of a virgin. The image maker became the image bearer. From the Athanasian Creed that was written back in the time of our early church fathers, several I guess you could say renditions of it until the one that I'm quoting from came from around A.D. 633. The reformers used the Athanasian Creed 
to affirm and assert great theological truths like the Trinity and the Incarnation. So from the Creed, it states this, and I quote, anyone then who desires to be saved should think about the Trinity. It is necessary for eternal salvation that one also believe in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. Now this is the true faith, that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and human equally, unquote. So it's very important for us to acknowledge that this isn't something that's just been thought up. This is something that is essential to the Christian faith. This is something that men have gone to the wall for, and women too as well, throughout the course of time for standing up against heresies and falsehoods in the name of Christianity. So what what I want us to do is just kind of see how in this fullness of time and redemption, there's a couple of things that are important. First, the, the historical precursors to the fullness of time. So this wasn't like some big surprise. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these points because there are studies within themselves. But one of the first things that's very clear is the scripture lets us know that Jesus is coming. <laughs> and, and in the prophetic visions of Daniel, first of all, if we, we'll, we'll get to the Genesis 3.15 in a moment, the first one. But in, in Daniel, we have some really good historical precursors to the fullness of time when he sees a vision and he pretty much says that there's going to be these different empires and eventually this Roman empire is going to come on the scene. And that, that's going to be a platform for when God starts to do his work. But the second one is also really important in a unique and special way. And that is the results of Hellenization. Hellenization is basically this. Greekify in the world. <laughs> the ancient Greeks under Alexander had pretty much conquered the known world, and their influence was so well established that the language, the Greek language, became the lingua franca. Now, that's a fancy way of saying the common language of everybody. It's, it's kind of like what English is now in the world. Today, English, if, you're, if you live in China, you're going to have to learn English if you're going to go anywhere. And it's just like the French had a, a kind of a lingua franca in Africa for a while. And it, it's possible. And this is why I think it's kind of interesting just to know from a historical perspective that the Roman tongue, mostly Latin, was second to Greek in most all economic and all political things other than the Roman Senate and so forth where Latin certainly had to be important. But in the, in the trade world, in the... In the day-to-day world, Romans spoke Greek. Jesus probably spoke Greek. And if the Chinese ever took over the world, they're probably going to speak English on the economic front because we will not learn Chinese too well. (laughs) That's just a point and a reference and an idea that related to what the importance of the Greek language was at the time of Jesus' coming because that Koine Greek, that common Greek, became the mechanism for the writing of the New Testament where everybody could read that New Testament in a language they were familiar with and didn't have to learn a Palestinian language or, or Hebrew or something like that. The third thing that is important for this fullness of time in a historical precursor is the Pax Romana, P-A-X, Pax Romana 
which meant the peace of Rome. Rome, for the most part, gave political stability to a rather unstable Mediterranean area. I mean, we know that the Mediterranean Sea was called the Roman Lake. And all the different cultures, multi-ethnic, cultural diversity, everything that went around the, the Roman Empire was stabilized by the presence of the Roman army. And in a similar way, there's that kind of same illustration that we can imagine. Why do we have the United States all over the place? Well, that's, that's something similar where the strongest military power can kind of keep things in check. But not only was it just that the presence of the Roman army everywhere was a reminder that Rome was in charge, the Romans also built a network of really important roads, which would later lead to being able to communicate the gospel in transporting the good news around the whole empire on easily accessed roads that were often well protected. So again, in the fullness of time, God's wisdom sees, you know, even though the world's spinning out and it's chaotic, He's got reasonable and functional mechanisms in the world already set. So when the fullness of time takes place, it's going to work into the favor of man's greatest need and the gospel's presentation. Let me just give you a couple examples here. Uh, Augustus Caesar and Julius Caesar both had feelings about the Jews. And, and, and the decree made by Augustus in 1 BC, it says this, and quote, it is the right of the Jews who are in the world under us and shall be allowed to maintain their ancestral customs without hindrance to them, unquote. Another place where he picks up on something that Julius Caesar said, he says this, unquote, Jews' protection to worship as they choose. Synagogues shall be classified as colleges to get around Roman laws banning secret societies. And the temples were allowed to collect yearly tax paid to all Jewish men for temple maintenance. And of course, the Romans had their hand in this as well. So <laughs> you can imagine, we're going to make a law so we can benefit from it. The Romans were smart. They knew how to do that kind of thing. But again, I'm just hopefully not overemphasizing the fullness of time. But what really strikes us as important is the personal presence of God through Jesus in the fullness of time. The personal presence of God through Jesus in the fullness of time. There are three things that I want us to look at. I know you don't have enough room probably to write them all, so let me just keep them short and sweet. Three things that are really important about the incarnation, the incarnate God in Christ God, very God, man, very God, the God-man. The first is the incarnation is a strategic intervention designed in keeping with Genesis 3.15. It is a strategic, the incarnation is a strategic intervention designed in keeping with Genesis 3.15, which says this, and I quote, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the, the point is, is that Jesus is going to come and deal in a battle with the devil. And though Jesus is only wounded, the devil's head will be crushed. Now, this was a really important place to go back in medieval historical discussions and theological discussions. And one of my favorite historical figures in the area of theology and, and with respect to the incarnation is a guy who lived a thousand some years ago. His name is Anselm of Canterbury. And, and Anselm wrote a famous book 
called Cur Deus Homo, which means why God became man. And in this book, there's an interesting dialogue with another abbot in the monastery area that he was serving, and his name was Boso, B-O-S-O. Some have liked to take a little bit of a turn on his name and call him the original Bozo, because uh, Bozo was a skeptic, and he raised questions about the incarnation and the seemingly impossible things like this critic that I quoted in the beginning of the message. The guy who said, you don't need the incarnation or the trinity. You can make sense of Christianity without those. Well, Bozo was the same kind of guy a thousand years ago, so nothing new under the sun, right? Anselm wrote one of the greatest expositions on the incarnation and refuted arguments rooted in skepticism. And this is one of his classic examples of many, many. It goes like this, in quote, God made man without a woman. God made a woman without a man. God makes men and women from each other, and God made a man without a man. In the incarnation of God, we do not suppose that he undergoes any abasement, but we believe the nature of man is now herein exalted, unquote. And may I add, the exaltation is a quick reminder of the very fact, is anything too hard for God? You see, we can't wrap our mind around how God could do this. You know why? Because we're not God. And we shouldn't be surprised when God does the unthinkable and the incomparable. The untangible, the incomprehensible. Because if we understood everything about God, we'd be God. The second thing here is the incarnation is a spectacularly brilliant demonstration of God's timeless person in real time. Let me say that again. The incarnation is a spectacularly brilliant demonstration of God's timeless person in real time. I mean, again, we have to think how great God is and how he can simply say, oh, I'm dusting off the, the glory here for a moment. I'm going to go down and visit earth and really deal with this problem. You know, this is where we get a fancy word like a hypostatic union and kenosis in one theological thought. Well, that basically means two natures and putting off glory or, or taking not divine prerogative. Because if God came to, to the world and wanted to be God, he'd be so glorious and so powerful. And when I mean be God in his eternal and magnificent fullness, he chose to be God in the flesh. And this incarnation is so spectacular. It's such a, in a crazy way when it was declared to Mary, when she heard this from the angel Gabriel, and it says in verse 29 of Luke chapter 1, verse 29, but she was greatly troubled by the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel says, do not be afraid. Goes and explains to her that the Holy Spirit's going to indwell her and she's going to have a son. And, uh, and she's just beside herself, but she doesn't doubt. She doesn't doubt because we know she says, I'm the Lord's servant. She becomes that. So it kind of goes with this famous old German song, See how a rose and blooms, where in the second verse it says, Isaiah, twas foretold it, the rose I have in mind. With Mary we behold it, the virgin mother kind. To show God's love aright, she bore to men a savior when half spent 
was the night. Jesus, God, very God, born in a manger, born in the fullness of time. At a time, God stepped out of the glories and became a man and was glorious in his spectacular demonstration of his timeless person in real time. And thirdly, the incarnation is a humble and sacrificial involvement. The incarnation is a humble and sacrificial involvement. We're, we're well aware of what it says in Philippians chapter 2, where it says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, you just can't get this. But he emptied himself, kenosis. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the incarnation is a humble and sacrificial involvement in real time. It's so important for us to see this. It's so important because it's also part of a confessional in the scriptures in John. In John chapter 4, verse 1. First John, I'm sorry. First John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets on the internet as well have gone and into the world by this you shall know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So it's a very important doctrine. We have to grasp hold of the incomprehensible and believe in the spectacular and be blessed by the incomprehensible and to see the glorious in the wonderful presentation of God in flesh. In fact, we're also reminded in Hebrews chapter 2 that this flesh visit of God in the real-time world, it says in verse chapter 2, verse 14 of Hebrews, since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partick, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely... It is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So we get the connection there with what Paul is saying to the Galatians about their understanding the testimony of Galatians being taught that the just shall live by faith through the example of Abraham. You see, Jesus showed in flesh and blood as an image bearer that he bore our burdens. He, he bore our burdens in the family, a real human family. He was even mocked as one of the brothers. Remember, oh, this is the carpenter's son? Really? He's, he's off his rocker, you know? He, 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 he taught people. He suffered under the fact that he taught the truth and he was mocked for it. He had friends and enemies within his own camp, perhaps, more than just Judas. We know a lot of his disciples left him after he said a hard thing in John chapter 6. He learned by suffering unjustly, even death on a cross. So the timeless work of Christ, verse 5, is then emphasized here. The timeless work of Christ is emphasized even furthermore in verse 5 to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. There it is. We have the adoption as sons. 
He ministered to the Jew first. Jesus made this clear up to the point of calling Jewish leaders hypocrites and causing the false teachers to hear his disdain for their lies who embraced the traditions of men over the revelation of God. And though he didn't go to the Gentiles in a certain way, yet we see evidence of him working with Gentiles in the testimony when Jesus spent time with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 9 and the Syrophoenician woman. He both of those women who were outside of the camp of Israel, he ministered to. And why did he do all this? And why is he continuing to do it all? To make one body in Christ, being in this process of adoption as sons and rightful heirs, as the schoolmaster, as the guardian, as the as a, uh, CPA in the household was, was teaching these kids, this is what you have coming to us. Jesus is praying the same. Jesus wants us to believe and to see that one day all these things that he has died for will come to pass. And he wants us to be reminded we are all one, where it says this in John chapter 17 and verse 22. The glory, Father, that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you've loved me. Isn't that neat to think that we really are all one in Christ. All the different ethnicities, all the different backgrounds, all the kind of trouble that you are in has been forgiven in Christ. All the things that, that you've done wrong and you still do wrong as a Christian. Can you find grace from God? He wants to make it clear he's doing everything. He's praying for his church. He's praying for us that we would experience a oneness that the world steps back and says, oh, they are disciples of Jesus. Just like he said, because they have love one for another. And so with this, we get to the third point here, the fullness of time in our celebration. This is pretty simple and straightforward. This brings us to a joyful response to these revelations, to these teachings that Paul gives. And the first thing we look at here is the timeless joy of our communion with Christ. Our eternal life, guys, has actually already begun. And in, in a very real way, we're all eternally created. Our souls are eternal. This is apparent in John chapter 5, where Jesus even makes it clear there'll be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. But that being said, as Christians, we have this opportunity to experience not only just the, the promise of God to live for eternity in peace and with him, but that as sons and daughters, through the new birth, our relationship to Christ, our elder brother, again mentioned there in chapter uh, to the book of Hebrews, verse 13, is fixed and forever. And if that's the case, then we are truly fixed and forever brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at, I, I don't think we see this often though, but in verse six, you can see the, the sense of how the Trinity is laid out here, though it doesn't call it the Trinity. Verse six, and because you are sons, God, the Father, has sent the Spirit the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And what does this mean, crying, Abba, Father? It's a, it's a timeless trinity that is now involved with our identity. It's 
our father, our elder brother, the spirit of the Holy One within us. And it's so much a mechanism of our true spirituality to be intimate with God. And the word Abba is an intimate word like daddy. It would be like we're able now because of being in Christ to say, daddy, I'm really scared. You have little children? You ever have that happen? The trust that a little child has? Mommy, dad, I'm really scared. Or daddy, I'm so happy. And as a father, you're so happy for them. This is intimacy in the, in the wonderful application of our Savior and our celebration in the fullness of time come the real time. You see, secondly, the timeless glory is when the faith lived now is the reality forever. The faith lived now is a faith that we sometimes see through a, a dark, though di- a glass, though dimly. But again, our eternal life, in a sense, is an, an underway. Look at what it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Look at the honor we have of being called God's children. Isn't that cool? I mean, isn't it wonderful that we don't have to second guess that? That it's in scripture, it's written and accounted for forever. Jesus said, not one word will pass away until all of this is fulfilled. Amen? Amen? Look how also it goes on in that passage of scripture. Look at how we now see Jesus through the eyes of faith and how it will be when we actually see him in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we shall know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's going to be a real Merry Christmas, huh? I mean, isn't that going to be amazing to be able to see Jesus? The one that we, through the eyes of faith, have longed to see and yet we associate with and we got to go back to this whole guardian thing a little bit. This, this kid being raised up in a home and being taught all about the fortunes that he has coming his way. And beyond the obvious love and gifts and all that kind of stuff, there's something that's important to keep in mind as well. Beyond the gifts and the unity and the joy and serving one another in the local church, there is laid up for us an inheritance that cannot be understood, and we cannot wrap our minds around. Because we, we just can't imagine the things. We can try to. But if we're going to be walking on streets of gold, that's like gold is gravel. <laughs> right? Many of you know how last year was a tough year for me and my family. I lost my younger brother suddenly to, to a death in June and my mom, after a long life, she died in October. So four months apart. And then on top of that, early in January, I almost kicked the bucket myself. But what's interesting, since last November, after my mother's passing, I was, I've been made the executor of my mother's estate. And what's interesting about being an executor is that I know everything about what will be inherited. My brother had a daughter who all of us lost touch with. 
My mother had stipulated in her will that surviving children of any of the original children, my sister and I and my brother, his daughter then would be a part of the inheritance. So over the course of time, I finally connected with her. And it was a bit awkward. Long story short, other than my telling her she just needed to trust an uncle that she never had seen or had ever met with a message that was too good to be true, that she had to believe me because it was for her good and her best interest. And so in a serendipitous kind of a way, I'm a mediator in the light of her life or in the, in the real time of her life. And in, in keeping with our hope, I think, you know, this is just amazing. She has no clue about what she's a, about to inherit from a grandmother she never met. You follow me? Just like we don't really have a clue in totality of what we're actually going to get. But we know we're going to get something. Just like my niece knows she's going to get something. So this is, this is in keeping with our own hope that we know we have something coming. We've been told by the timeless Christ who stepped into this world telling us that we are loved and that there is a gift of eternal life of ours to receive and forevermore because eye has not seen nor ear has heard nor heart imagined what God has prepared for them who love him. Because we also know too the sufferings that we have had in this world cannot be compared to the glory which will be revealed in us. And so friends, it's to the working of all this that I've said that your hearts would be ready in this time, because the scripture also says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we, working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. We put no obstacles in anyone's way. This church is not putting any obstacles in anyone's way. The gospel is proclaimed. Jesus died for your sins. You can confess your sin and Jesus will give you salvation, not on the merit of your goodness or your pedigree, but on the fact the just shall live by faith. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves to you in every way. Hopefully this has refreshed your appreciation for the celebration of the incarnation and that our time together this morning has been a, a rich opportunity to reflect on eternal truths that really do matter in spite of what the internet teaches. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to open your word, spend time with your people, and to have just the joyous opportunity to celebrate truth. In the fullness of time you came, O timeless one, you had entered time and rescued us in our hopeless world. Bless now the continued singing and our fellowship this day. In Jesus' name, amen.